Welcome to the program on Unsafe Space. My name is Carter Laren. I am joined, as always, by the bad Mama Jamma, Carrie Smith. Carrie, take it away. We can't hear you. Uh, hold on. Oh, there no. we go. Take <laughs> it away. Hi. Of course, we had to have tech problems again. And on a day when we have so many people waiting in the chat, that sucks. Um, I think, are you going to give them the new link? Um, I'm going to do that. I'm going to mute myself while I do that. Why don't you... Can you introduce, you do introductions and start, I'm going to go tell people what's going on online. Okay. Okay. Cool. All right. Yeah. Follow us on, on, on Unsafe Space on YouTube. Um, so we're here today with comedian Josh Denny. Josh, you might need to unmute yourself if you haven't already. Um, Josh. I'm unmuted. I know what's up. <laughs> we, I'm in. Thanks so much for your patience. I, uh, this isn't happening already. Um, Josh. Oh, wait, I'm unmuted. I'm something bad's happening. I can hear myself echoing. We're, we're having issues, Carter. No, I fixed that. Sorry, that was me. That? Okay, that was you. Um, so I was just going to say the last time we had tech, tech issues this bad is when we had another comedian on. We had Pat Dixon on. And um, he was also very patient. And uh, anyway, I really appreciate it. Yeah. So um, Carter wrote this great intro for you. Should I read that? Sure. Okay, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame me for this. <laughs> Josh Denny is a comic and former host of Food Network's Ginormous Food. Josh was the victim of a Twitter outrage mob last year over a so-called racist tweet, which resulted in the real-world consequences of job loss and social ostracization. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh Denny. Um, I wanted to say personally, I am so excited for you to be here because um, I used to work in comedy and I love talking to comedians. And uh, And even though I think what you're... I think it's um, what you've been going through since you were uh, targeted by this mob is horrible. I also think it shows a really strength of like a really, really good strength of character on your part. So I kind of admire you from afar. Yeah, I mean, it's well, that's nice of you to say. I appreciate that. But it's one of those things. There's really not a lot you can do about it. I mean, one of the things you could do for sure is just create some plethora of content and try to bury it with other press and other things like that. But, you know, ultimately, you know, it's it's one of those things where I go back and forth on, you know, caring about how available that is for people to see, because, you know, it's not like it's not like I got me too. It's not like yeah. that there was something that came out that was based <laughs> in reality that is like, oh, no, that's a bad look for me. It's really just like uh, a take of mine that was interpreted poorly and maybe delivered poorly. Uh, people have their opinions about that. But uh, the funny thing is, uh, the thing I think that's so interesting about it is that it's really stood the test of time. Like, if you go back and read that tweet and all the subsequent tweets that I put out that day, and as we're coming up on a year now, it was like May 19th of last year. It's almost like Nostradamus level prediction of everything that has happened in terms of the media's attempt to sort of demonize what it is to be a straight white male. And you don't have to look any further than the current Democratic primary shuffling oh. to see how much of a, a scarlet letter it is to be a straight white guy or, or particularly an old one. Right. Yeah. Can you just remind, tell people what the tweet was about for people who didn't I have, I that. actually have the tweet. Have here. It? Yeah. Go ahead, Carter. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me see if I can pull it up. Dun, 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 dun. There we go. At least my tech works. YouTube. Fuck you. YouTube. My tech's <laughs> fine. Uh, yeah. So here's the here's your offensive, horrible tweet, which makes you a bad racist person and unemployable. Yes. You got me not seeing. 
Yeah. As uh, Gavin McInnes says, they caught me not seeing. <laughs> they did. They caught you. They caught you not seeing. So it should we read it? You want to read it? For yeah, people sure. who are listening, not sure. everyone is. The, yeah. So the tweet says straight white male has become this century's N word. It is used to offend and diminish the recipient based on assumption and bias. No difference in the usage. And so, you know, as you can go on, you'll see a bunch of other comments of me saying, like, let me elaborate on this, which clearly did not necessarily make it better for the people that no, were so offended not. by the initial tweet. But essentially, and to give a little context, there was a, there was another mass shooting that day. And when I logged in and was trying to find stories on the mass shooting, it was just like straight white males at it again. And of course, the comedian brain in my head kicks in and goes, isn't this how we used to just describe all black people? Didn't we just see like a crime, like a crime happen on TV and your grandparents would be like, that's just black people being black. And so that, that was kind of the inspiration behind that thought of like, wow, we're literally just substituting the N word with the phrase straight white male. And we're doing the same kind of broad brushing and generalizing um, in the media. And it's, it's not helpful. If anything, it just alienates people and makes people that aren't, committing mass murders or doing any of the other things that straight white men were being blamed for. It makes them feel ostracized and othered. And, and that's how you create white supremacists and alt-right people and white nationalists. And it's, and so in a way I was trying to say like, listen, guys, you're doing the thing again, and this is what's getting you what you don't want. And it, that completely fell on deaf ears and then pivoted. And of course, then what people went on to do was find old racially charged jokes that I do, which is what I've always done in my career and try to conflate the two and say, well, if you've made jokes about race in the past and you have these takes about race, you combine those two things and you are a racist. And that's everyone's favorite word on the internet now. Right. It's really, so there's a medium piece out about you that um, it just came out, right? About, about yes. how this controversy or whatever has followed you into, as you, as your, um, been have been in a job search or started at a new job where you were recruited i guess mm -hmm. supporting you for a while right and then like on the first day or the second day you were fired because of your second tweet. day yeah wow second day so you know and it's interesting because you know the 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 it, it all happened so fast i mean that the second day i was there so a little color and, and the article goes on to explain this but uh the opportunity that arose for me to go work for this company came out of a, a longtime friend of mine and a mentor of mine throughout my professional career. And um, he had started working for this company a little over a year ago and had kind of been talking to me all along, like saying, hey, you know, my, at the time he took the job, my show had just ended at Food Network. And so he said, if you're looking to get back into the corporate world and the business world, um, I might have something for you. And so we've kind of been taught, we had been talking for about a year and then over the last, you know, since I want to say February, we've really been focused on like getting that locked in. And I met with the president of the company and uh, talked about uh, talked about all the different uh, things that I could bring to the table there and kind of, oh, that's not good. That's I went to the stream and now it's airing on my thing. Um, so uh, where was I? Yeah, so we 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 had really good conversations. It felt like a really great fit culturally for me to go join this company. And, and they, they liked it so much or they liked the, the fit so much that they were creating a new position for me. And then uh, two days in, like the second day I was there, I got called into the office with the HR person 
And she basically just had my Twitter and all my social media stuff pulled up on a screen. It was like, is this you? Which I thought was kind of a dumb question because it's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's definitely me. Like you can see clear as day. Like that's my picture. <laughs> this is my face. Like what a dumb question, but sure. And, um, and then she literally started going through some of my jokes uh, and was like, well, like, did you say this? And I go, well, yeah, but it's comedy. Like, obviously I'm being sarcastic. And some of them were incredibly benign too. And I was just like, yeah, of course these are, but this is all comedy. This is a comedic persona. And she at the moment was just like, okay, well, we're going to investigate this. And we're going to have to put you on leave. So leave all your company equipment behind and uh, we'll let you know what we come up with by the end of the day. And then of course the next phone call I got from them was like, yep, you're fired. And uh, I just said, on what grounds? Yeah. And they said, well, we're just ex exercising our at will options. So naturally a lot of, and that's what a lot of people have said. Uh, they go, well, yeah, they, they have the at will right to decide who they're going to bring in and et cetera, et cetera. But the question is through the extensive background check and everything that I went through, how did I get a job in the first place? Like how did it go through all of those processes and how do you get brought on board to a company? And then uh, all of that stuff had been vetted. All of that stuff had been looked at. And then all of a sudden on day two, somebody has a problem. So my belief is that it actually had far more to do with my political leanings. Uh, when yeah. you go into my Twitter, you go into my social media, not only do you see jokes and comedy, but you also see a lot of my discussion about politics and my point of view of the world. I think that's actually what someone got offended by. And I think that's actually what drove the decision to terminate me. And that's obviously what our case will look to prove in court. It. <sighs> Go ahead, Carter. <laughs> no, I'm I'm just sighing because I finally I think I uh, told everyone the new URL, so I'm kind of back paying attention. Uh, to welcome back, right. welcome back. We've just um, been playing the uh, the groundwork for what happened to Josh and the tweet. No, I, I I know, and actually, um, so Josh, just to clarify, because uh, there's people, I, so we have a bunch of trolls in chat. Hi, trolls. Uh, you're welcome to be here. Hey guys. Um, but. Uh, you know, they're like, oh, you were fired from the Food Network. That's not my understanding, actually. You had uh, no. the show was over before any of this uh, craziness happened. Yeah. So um, you have when you sign a contract for a TV show, most people don't realize this. But Carrie, you know this because you worked in production and sold shows. You mm -hmm. Before the show gets picked up, you sign what's called a futures contract. So essentially, you agree to terms over four to five years um, and pay is discussed and everything else. And then they have these contract terms. So contract term for a show like mine is uh, 30 episodes or 12 months, whatever happens faster, right? And so once we kind of hit our one-year contract term, they just didn't make the option to pick the show back up again. So our one-year contract term happened in October of 2018, and they just didn't pick up our second-year term. Long right. before any of this stuff happened. So long to say like... Yes, long before I had switched over to the alt-right and became the new Milo Yiannopoulos. Yes. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Yeah, because I, I don't know if you know my background, but this with this show and for the the people that you brought with you, yeah, <laughs> uh, those people. Um, my background is that yeah, I worked in comedy as a manager and a producer, but I, I really, I was, I was a, what I would call and do call an SJW for about twenty years. I, I was in entertainment because not so much because I wanted to work in entertainment, but because I wanted to push my belief system and. I thought comedy was a great way to do that. And it is because you're getting people to laugh while you're also maybe bringing them over to a certain point of view, whatever your point of view is. And, um, and so I was uh, uh, in that belief system for about 20 years. And so I'm 
in just the past couple of years started having a huge transformation in belief. And the show is kind of about going back and untangling what that ideology was, what it was that I thought it was and what it actually was. Um, would you say that you've had a similar kind of awakening or transition in the past couple of years? Or have you always been a wrong thinker? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, that's I think that's a great it's a great question, because I, I could tell you in 2008, uh, I started doing comedy in 2007. 2008 was Obama's first term. Right. And I would say at that time, I definitely if you would have asked me, I definitely would say I identified as extremely liberal. Right. Uh, all about free speech, all about uh, marriage equality, all about um legalization of drugs that type of thing like extremely on the liberal side of things and it's it's kind of amazing how when your belief system doesn't change but the world around you kind of changes you find yourself getting pushed and i started listening to different people on the internet and being like wow we agree with the same things and and i actually found a lot of the right-wing people and they're called right-wing people now i don't even think that they are but hmm. A lot of the right wing people that I found, I was introduced through Joe Rogan's podcast and on his podcast, a lot of the dialogue is just let's let's talk about things we think we can agree on and things that we agree on about the world. And I found out that a lot of people I agreed with were people that were in this intellectual dark web or considered part of the right now. And you start to look into it and you go, wow, this is apparently what I used to think was an extremely liberal way of looking at the world is now considered conservative. And in a way, by being kind of pushed over into that side, I started to listen to more and more of my conservative friends. And, and I feel like my, a lot of my views became more conservative over time. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's, I think both things are happening. I think that my views have started to change, but also, I mean, I'm still liberal and I, I what's happened around me is that the left, the mainstream left has become what I call, you know, this authoritarian type of illiberal um, identitarian belief system. It's not, it's not liberal, although a lot of people call it that. Um, and so on the one hand, you've got that shift on the left towards the alt left or the SJW left or what have you. Um, and then at the same time, like you said, I think it sort of started to, that shift itself started to wake me up. So I started questioning some of the things that I had always believed to be truth. Um, what about the comedy world? So I, in my, from my perspective, the comedy world has undergone a bit of a shift and a change in terms of what's popular or what types of shows were being sold. I worked on a, a show um, that I consider to be one of the first SGW late night shows. And then after that show, I, there were a lot of them. It seemed to be the trend um, that, you know, we got picked up at a time when they, they were looking for stuff like that. And I think they're still in the middle of that trend. Would you say that's accurate or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, you know, and the you, you made me think of the Carlin quote uh, where he says political correctness is America's newest form of intolerance and is especially pernicious because it comes disguised as tolerance. Right. So a lot of this stuff is changing in the name of like, we have to be better. And the thing that's funny to me is that the pursuit of that actually comes with a lot of behavior that isn't better. It's just different. We've just shifted the pendulum. And and one of the things that a lot of my friends in the industry, because there were a lot of people that when that Twitter thing happened, a lot of comedians came to my aid and my aid and said, hey, man, like, we know what you were trying to say. Get off the Internet, like unplug from your phone, like just get away <laughs> from it. It's crazy. It'll it'll peter out. And sure enough, like two or three days later, the Roseanne thing happened and my thing went into obscurity. Oh. <laughs> so thanks, Roseanne, for taking the bullet on that one. She was like, hold my beer. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course. So 
the 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 crazy thing about how the industry is changing is that there is this idea of like, well, we want to we want to create more tolerant uh, and more diverse and inclusive content. But in in doing that, none of it's happening organically. It's just completely manufactured. It's completely uh, curated. And I mean, I've gone into meetings and this was even like uh, six months before the Food Network show ended. So when we knew we got picked up for a second season, I started trying to go out and pitch other shows. And there were literally, when I was trying to pitch scripted stuff, I literally sat across from executives who said, oh, we're just not buying anything from white men right now. And I thought, <laughs> are, are you fucking crazy? Like, as a guy who has hired people for jobs for the last 12, 13 years of my life, uh, you can't just tell someone we're not buying things from your people. <laughs> But the industry has a complete, like, they don't give a fuck. They're just straightforward. Like, yep, no, we're not buying any heterosexual white male content. That's just not what we're doing right now. <laughs> and so as, as a dude who has no choice but to make, and by the way, I, it's just the idea that like, oh man, let me scrap my show that's entirely about me being a straight white dude. Like, that's not what my show was at all, but it's just the idea. So that's my point is this pursuit of diversity and inclusion is YouTube interrupted the live stream at this point and resumed after a few seconds. We rejoined the conversation when Josh is discussing the active community of trolls that follows him around. They were in the unsafe space chat during the live stream and were quite active and aggressive. Sorry for the break in conversation flow. Devoted fans, and if they have their own if they have their own sort of like meta inside lingo and speak the things that they like to do, you just got to embrace it, man. You got to embrace it's so weird. it. Weird. It's so weird. They just, they, they have their battle cries, plane crash. What's the other one? Two patrons. Oh yeah. Actually you predicted that one and it did show up. Yeah. Two patrons. He's got two patron two. Is it patrons? Patreons? I don't even fucking know. He's got two patrons. What else? Uh, nobody's brought up my vinyl Kickstarter that I ran many years ago that didn't succeed. <laughs> It's like it, 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 there is some. This is the interesting thing, right? This is the way I look at it. I, and and this is this is what you have to understand in a world today where everybody cares so much about what they put out and what they project and the and the image they project. When you're a guy who really doesn't give a fuck about that and you're you're just incredibly transparent about everything, it's met with such scrutiny and skepticism that people are willing to believe that everything you say is a lie to avoid the idea that you might actually be the only person who's telling the truth, who doesn't give a shit. Like, obviously I have nothing to gain by making up stories about getting fired from really well-paying jobs or, uh, yeah, I'm in another lawsuit. Like this is my second lawsuit against a company in the last six or seven years. Like it's not fun for me. It's not an exciting part of my life, but I think I think it's important that I share the story, and that's why I, I talked with Isaac, and he wanted to write an article about it and kind of get it out there so that people understand. Like, this is not a hypothetical thing. Like the idea that these Twitter mobs are just Twitter mobs and that they go away, it's not a hypothetical thing. And the difference is, like, I have other means of making money. Like, I'll hustle whether it's doing rideshare gigs or picking up shows around town or doing brand ambassador work for companies or doing like uh, social media engagement thing, whatever it is, like I'll hustle my way to making a living, but there are a lot of other people out there who might just have a blog or a podcast that their work stumbles on someday and they've worked at a place for 15 years. 
and that place like Dick's Sporting Goods just decides one day to get woke and now that person gets fired and loses their whole career because companies think well if we don't like what who they are outside of work then we'll just fire them we don't they don't have to work here and so my concern is that this is something that's only going to grow and get worse for people to where it's like entirely a big brother thing where at some point you're you're choices are to conform to the mainstream and to agree with what everybody's like me too i agree with everything everyone else says or you can risk losing everything just being yourself right and and that's a scary world i don't want to live in that world so if i can do something and, and i am i don't think i'm a religious guy but i think i'm spiritual enough to say that if the world keeps pushing me in this direction where I keep finding myself in these situations where I'm fighting these legal battles in court, that maybe that's my purpose. Maybe what I'm supposed to do is to be the guy who is, you know, fighting these things so that at some point other people don't have to worry about this kind of stuff in the future. Do you think the companies actually care or do you think they're just worried about themselves being tarnished by, uh, you know, a rabid Twitter mob or, or worse? I, I don't even think it's that. I really believe that it's just simply, um, well, we're going to side with whatever we think is the least risky, right? So they're probably thinking, well, this dude is a straight white male under the age of, and again, I'm not just trying to like dog whistle straight white male shit over and over again, but these are real conversations that human resources departments say. Uh, the odds of a jury being sympathetic to a straight white male under the age of 40 are less than, let's say, a black female over the age of 40. And so historically, uh, the law... As, as it pertains to rights has has this concept in this construct of protected class even though the law itself doesn't specifically say it's only designed to protect members of these classes that's how it's always been applied historically so i've been in conversations with my hr people where i've tried to take performance action against managers that work for me and they say okay well we really need to make sure that we have our our reporting buttoned up right because this is a female manager Latino over the age of 45. So she absolutely is going to have an easier time suing us than somebody who's like a 20 year old white kid who went to Harvard. Right. And so when I've been on that end of those conversations, I know that the legal departments of these companies just look at it and go, okay, well, his chances of winning in court are not as good as maybe somebody else down the line who might complain about this. So we're going to cut our losses and roll the dice and take our chance that that person's civil rights won't be upheld in a court of law. And most of the time, people just don't fight it. And right. so I, I know the law and I'm going to fight it. And I've got a lawyer who agrees that, yes, the law was broken in this case. Yes, they probably rolled the dice and thought there's a, a good chance that even if we do have to go to court and we are sued, that we'll still win. Um, and we're, we're trying to call that bluff. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I mean, historically, you, you I would argue that uh, it was the other way around in terms of what classes were protected. Right. Like historically, it was much easier to be a white guy in court against um, a, a minority. But that's flipped in uh, it's, it's what you're saying, I think, is probably post affirmative action or something like that. It's post it's kind of the modern woke world. It's actually. Uh, the other way around. Is that what your argument is? Well, it, I think the context of what you're talking about, definitely it changes with what it is, right? I still think in criminal cases, it's not beneficial to be a person of color when you're talking about violent crimes or particularly drug possession crimes, things like that. Um, but when it comes to like employment law, absolutely. There is this idea that like, this is a, a white guy 
um, in an executive position, a higher level position, you know, all bets are off. The guy can, we can do whatever we want to him and no one's going to be sympathetic in a jury. Nobody's going to be sympathetic in, in a courtroom. So yeah, I, I think, and another example is like divorce law, right? I mean, how one-sided is custody law towards mothers versus single fathers, right? I've had a situations with friends of mine who have had custody battles with their significant others. And the, the mother can be like on drugs, not working a uh, huge criminal background. And the father basically has to like uh, be an altar boy to get partial custody with their kids. So there are sections of our legal system that are absolutely biased on race or gender, depending on what chamber of, of legislation we're talking about. Yeah. Family courts are completely separate from regular courts and the, the, the system is kind of wonky, um, but I, you know, archaic. Yeah. I mean, getting back to the employment thing, you know, I've uh, I've been an executive at companies uh, a lot over the past 20 years. And uh, absolutely, those decisions are always had where it's like, well, you know, what's the least risky thing to do here? Um, we know that we're going to we have to do something about this situation, whatever the situation is. And yeah, demographic information absolutely comes up because you get worried about um, you know, what the likelihood that someone will win in court, what the likelihood that, uh, you know, it'll be perceived a certain way or whatever mm -hmm. that is. So those discussions, um, you know, those discussions absolutely do, do happen. And so can you just go over your lawsuit for a sec? You're suing the um, company that fired you like on day two. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Correct. And what yes. are you suing them for? Uh, well, the actual, the actual entire complaint isn't done yet, but essentially that, that the the gist of the case is that the decision was made particularly around my political beliefs had nothing to do with being a comedian had nothing to do with comedy or jokes or any content it more had to do with somebody looking into my social media and then making an employment decision based off of my political leanings um that's that's essentially the genesis of the case and when you when you see these legal complaints when they're written out in full i mean they're like 30 pages long and so yeah. it goes on to state, here's our, here's our case. Here's what we're presenting. Here's what we know. There are some details I can't reveal because some of them are sort of like aces up our sleeve for the courtroom and for the case. But ultimately, that's it. That's the basis of the case. The case right. is uh, you guys had plenty of time and plenty of foresight that I was a comedian, that I had this background, that I had done things outside of the corporate space. Uh, it's not hard to do a simple Google search and find everything I've ever done. And then... Uh, you still made the decision to hire me. Not only did you make the decision to hire me, but you created a position specifically for me, which also creates an interesting situation because uh, it's hard to say that I failed to live up to the expectations of the job because you didn't even have a job position created historically before that. So it's a really, it's an interesting case for all those reasons, right? It's very, it's going to be very difficult for them as a company to make a case for anything other than making a biased decision to terminate because of the time I wasn't even, if I were there for a week, you could say he was here for a week and we just didn't like him. It didn't work out. He wasn't performing well. People weren't responding to his leadership. So yep. when it's day two, uh, it's very hard to make that kind of case. It's very hard to say that there wasn't some political bias towards my point, my, my express point of view on certain things online. And that is protected speech in California. There are employment laws that say, that if you are making any sort of political speeches or attempting to organize online using social media, your job can't make an employment decision based off of that. And that's clearly what happened in this case. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see how if it, it shakes out.
right. You know, and then I, I want to. You haven't filed the complaint yet, but it will be filed. Is what no, you're saying? No, no, no. The filing, the initial filing, went through two weeks ago, but the detailed filing, I think we have somewhere like sixty or ninety days to to present our entire filing in full. Of here is the entire complaint, a thirty-page report of, you know, right. this is what we believe happened. This is what the damages we're suing for. This is the aftermath, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, I was just going to say, as much as I was laughing about this earlier, and I, I have to laugh at stuff like this, otherwise I find it very too frustrating. But um, you're not the it, it. You're right about this becoming more common. I have a friend. We've had him on the podcast, um, Mikey, Mike Harlow. Um, he's part of the actually tonight in Los Angeles. Were you are you in LA? Yeah. Yeah. So in LA tonight, he's speaking on a LGBT walk away panel. And because of his views, which don't fit in with my old ideal, the SGW ideology, you know, he's been, he's been targeted uh, to some degree online and he just got his first, it was a rejection letter for a writing job where they said, you know, you're a great talent. They even said, look, you're a very talented writer. Unfortunately, we saw one of your tweets and it was a tweet. The funny thing is it wasn't even one of the most offen uh, you know, right. offensive things he had said. It was an, it was an actual joke. And they said, because of this joke, you know, we don't think you'll fit in here in our inclusive environment. And right. uh, he, I just, I, I, I mean, I know, I know that happens. It just really, it's disappointing to see it because as he rightly pointed out in much more colorful language than I'm about to, it's not a very inclusive environment at all. If you can't tolerate someone, sure, a gay person who's got a different point of view than you think gay people are allowed to have, you know, and, um, uh, you know, and he's not the only, when I first started writing about my old belief system, I started getting uh, friends and acquaintances writing me in private, but also strangers who are writing me and saying, hey, I've really, you know, a lot of lib fellow liberals who are afraid to say anything, who are afraid to share certain opinion pieces, who are afraid even to hit like on things on social media because oh, yeah. they're afraid of losing their job. And, the, and these are people in academia and these are people in entertainment, like, like I was in, the people in uh, journalism and who work at social media companies and just all over the, all over the board. And that kind of fear is something that, um, I mean, I think, I think, I think what you're doing, what I hear that you're doing anyway about this is you're, you're one of those people who take like the slings and arrows in a way to help other people, whether you signed up for that or not, that's what's happened so that other people maybe can get over some of their fear in small ways. Like not everybody has to has to be the 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 target of a of a social media mob, but you can just challenge this stuff in your everyday life. You know, well, get over your fear as much as you can. Yeah, and and sometimes you know, I, I try to I try to be open minded. Like when the Food Network thing came up, and, and kind of pivoting, but kind of not. When the Food Network thing came up, I thought to myself, like, is this really what I want to do? Like, do I really want to be like one of these dorky food show guys? And uh, and then the other thing I felt like when the opportunity came along was I was like, man, I, you know, I feel very lucky to get this. Um, I feel like I haven't necessarily earned it. I feel like I haven't necessarily done enough to earn this opportunity. Like I have friends that have worked way harder and this is their actual dream job and they're not being offered this. And I had a good conversation with my friend Chris uh, about it. And Chris was like, dude, you have time to earn it for the rest of your life. Like what you do with it is, is being appreciative of it making the most of it and trying to to maximize that opportunity is how you earn it. And so sometimes you just have to listen to the universe and let it steer you 
where it's steering you because sometimes that drives you to your greater purpose. And I, I try to be open-minded to that. I try to think like, no, did it do listen, would I much rather have this never happened and still be pitching shows and still be doing stand-up and have never even gotten to the point where I was looking at getting back into corporate America and doing all those things. Yeah. And you maybe. lost your agents, right? You lost your yeah, yeah. My whole team, my whole team walked away when this happened. Would I like my life to be easier? Absolutely. But I'm also trying to listen and find purpose in the difficulty. I'm trying to listen to what's happening and trying to say, okay, if if the world keeps pushing me into this place of, listen, do you really care about comedy? Do you really care about free speech? Do you really care about that as a value? Well, then go fucking fight for it. And if that's where the universe is pushing me, then I, I, I owe it to myself and to the other people that want to do this kind of stuff to listen. And, and listen, you shouldn't, there shouldn't have to be a distinction between being an open mic comic and being somebody who's bent, who has an HBO special comedy is comedy. And the idea that, um, you know, well, you're not professional enough as a comedian for us to discount what you say is comedy. So we're going to use it to make an employment decision. I don't want that to happen to my friend who just started doing comedy a week ago, any more than I want it to happen to somebody who's been doing comedy for 25 years. And then, you know, at some point, like, shouldn't you be able to retire and go back to living a normal life? A great example is like Al Franken. The guy stopped doing comedy many, many years ago, yeah. got into politics. And then people pulled up something that he was doing on a comedy tour and tried to say like, oh, no, this is indicative of who he is as a senator. Get rid of him. And he just dove on the sword. So, you know, I, yeah. I, I try to I try to listen to, you know, the universe, as people say, and 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 make the most of it as I can and fight what battles I can fight. So the, the, um, the thing that, that, you know, you mentioned Al Franken and that's, it's something where I'm, I, I'm cool with comedy being edgy and, and, and whatever and offending people. I think that's great. And it's free speech. And, and I wouldn't want to, you know, put anyone in jail for, for doing anything otherwise. Do you think there's a line though, where, um, that you can cross like Al Franken had, I mean, the story was she was unconscious and he was like fondling her, right? And taking pictures of it is because can comedy be used as a cover to just justify misbehavior? Maybe. Or, I mean, maybe. I, I guess it depends on uh, the only people who could ever tell you that, though, are the people that actually do it. Right. The people like I can't I can't pontificate on what his intent was or what the context of that was. I can tell you that personally, a lot of the times when I'm doing comedy, I'm not using it as a cover to be like, let me really get this, like, let me dog whistle real ideas that I have out into the world. I really try to write material that presents opposition to the, the mainstream of how people think, whether it's what I think or not. And I, I used to use this phrase all the time. I'll use it again. I, I don't care what people think. I do want them to question how they think. And I do want them to question, well, if I believe this, why do I believe this? And come up with a, a ruling on it that's based off of your own investigation of what you believe you know. And so I, I try to write jokes that that steer people towards reevaluating why they have the opinions they have. But at the end of the day, I really don't give a shit what people think. Like they, they're going to leave that show either feeling changed or digging in their heels even more to what they already believed. And so you, you can only do with that 10 minutes or 15 minutes of comedy what you can do. Um, but for me, it's really just about making jokes that compel you to think differently. That's what I loved about comedy growing up when I would watch Chris Rock or I would watch George Carlin, the guys that really had a, a, a genius way of writing comedy that didn't necessarily tell you that what you think is stupid. 
but they might have given you enough jokes where you arrived at that point yourself and went, oh, man, why do I think this? This is stupid. <laughs> I was just going to ask about that because I've certainly had uh, experiences in the past where I've I've laughed at a com comic who I kind of knew was disagreeing with some belief that I had. Um, but I couldn't help myself because they were doing it in a way that made me laugh. And it didn't make me question my beliefs afterwards and go off and think like, well, is there a grain of truth at least to this maybe? Or, I mean, sometimes I would, you know, realize why, but often laughter, laughter is so, uh, visceral and, um, subconscious that it's really difficult to force yourself to laugh at stuff that, that is quote, correct right um if it's not actually funny um you can't just go in i don't think may maybe social justice uh warriors on the on the chat can can tell me otherwise but i don't think that you can go in and say like i'm super woke so i'm gonna laugh at this stuff that's said whenever there's like super woke stuff i'm gonna laugh at it even if it's not funny they end up just clapping they yeah, clap a lot yeah there's a lot of applause it's more like working to an applause break versus working to laughter right um, so there's something, I mean, there is something particularly valuable about comedy in that it bypasses your, uh, it bypasses often the part of your brain that's kind of analyzing from a rational perspective, uh, how, what, how to respond to this and instead is just kind of a, an emotional visceral response. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, like the, I love comedy that makes me rethink what I think. And I think the best comic at that is Jim Jeffries. Jim Jeffries has very, very sort of leftist uh, ideas about things, particularly gun control, right? And he did a bit on, I think it was two specials ago or maybe three specials ago. Uh, yeah, it was called Bear, B-A-R-E. And on the cover of it, he's like naked. But he did this like 10 or 15 minute bit on gun control and why the the push for keeping the second amendment by Americans is stupid. And at the end of it, it was so well done. I was like, he makes a lot of good points. Like <laughs> that we really, there, there really is kind of dumb that we care this much about guns or that we're doing that stuff. But uh, you know, I, I could literally listen to that bit and enjoy it and laugh. And it did make me stop and question like, okay, well, what do I really think about the second amendment? What do I, is it really that important to me? Is it really? So whether it changes your mind or not, the fact that comedy has the power to do that, to get you just to stop and think about what you think. I mean, you you couldn't argue that we need it now more than ever before in society. Oh, I think absolutely we do. Yeah, well, that's why I mean, that's why I was in it. I, I definitely I loved uh, I loved comedy that for me at the, at the time, I'm like, you know, I like comedy that makes people think about racism and sexism and homophobia and in different ways. And the 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 issue is that um i think i think it still has to be funny while mm -hmm. it does that and so much of it now is just uh didactic or whatever it's just like to, let me preach to you about what you should believe and you know i well, and sometimes, no go ahead and sometimes it's hard to get to that point right like i'll give you an example so when i, w I was driving uber a couple of years ago and uh i was driving these two gay guys and they were having a argument in the back seat and it was kind of funny to me because the one guy said so the other guy was like, shut up. And the other guy said, you don't tell me to shut up. And then the other guy said, well, I'll tell you to shut up. If I want to fucking tell you to shut up. And he goes, you don't tell me to shut up. And he goes, I'll fucking say you shut up. And they just went back and forth. And then all of a sudden the one dude fucking belted the other dude across the face. Right. And my initial reaction was like, holy shit. Uh, that's, this is funny. 
And then I had to stop myself and go, wait a minute, if this was a husband and wife, I would absolutely not have the same reaction. Like, I wouldn't laugh at that. I would be like, holy shit, now I got to take you guys to the police station because you can't beat your domestic partner in public. But there's that moment of trepidation where I was just like, nah, it's two dudes. And he told him not to tell him to shut the fuck up. So, you know, we, we find ourselves in these moments in society that make us question, like, why, why do I have that bias? Why do I look at it differently? Why did I look at two men in a domestic dispute completely differently than I would look at a man and a woman. And is that right? Is that okay? I didn't know how I felt about it in the moment, but that's something I would later go on and take and go, okay, can I make this funny? Is it funny? How do I make a joke out of this? Because I want to bring the audience to that same place of being uncomfortable, but in a way you you sort of can't reveal the turn until the end or else they'll, you know, they know what's coming. So the real art is in comedians who can take those real life experiences and bring you on a journey where uh, it's almost like, you know what moment I remember in a movie is like in that movie, a time to kill at the end where Matthew McConaughey does that amazing monologue. And then at the end he goes, and now imagine she's white, basically pointing out to the audience that the entire time they're thinking of this horrible atrocity, they're still remembering that this little girl is black and they're still remembering that they have a different set of of what's okay for that girl than they would with a white girl and i remember seeing that as a young kid and being like holy shit that's a profound feeling to be reminded that you have an implicit bias in the way you're looking at something and it sneaks up on you and i've always tried to write comedy that does that and i don't always succeed sometimes i write shit that bombs out and i never do it again but um I, that's the kind of stuff that interests me and I would I would hate for comedy to come to a place where people just can't even attempt that kind of stuff because they might lose their job. Aren't we already there, though? I mean, we're already there. Yeah. I mean, I, it might be too late. Right. But we can at least try to fight to to fight against it. So you and I chatted before the show about, uh, you know, I, I guess we were lamenting a little bit about late night comedy and, and clapter instead of laughter. Um, but. You know, maybe the right thing is to let those that let the networks die and start doing stuff online and let that take over. I mean, we, we you know, there's no there's no reason why that has to be saved. Um, just let it die. It, it'll die eventually because it's not funny. Um, so who cares? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the difficulty, though, is, is when all of the channels of distribution are just monopolized by one type of content. I think it, it definitely sets the stage for, it definitely makes it more difficult. It definitely sets the stage for opposition. But the thing I can, uh, that concerns me is the idea that it just sort of indoctrinates an entire culture of young people as if to say, well, this is the right way to think because this is what's on television. And that other stuff lives on the internet and lives in the dark channels of the internet. Yeah, but the, because but it's, the young people, the young people don't watch television. <laughs> That's, that's true. That's, that's true. the thing, right? I mean, I would I just uh, looked this up the other day because I was curious about it. Like people like uh, Sargon Avakad have uh, just as many subscribers as CNN has viewers. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think if you're if you're a young kid, you know, you, you see CNN in the airport. But other than that, there's <laughs> you're not watching this shit elsewhere. Yeah, um, you're, you're right about that. So, I mean. Fuck it. Start your own YouTube channel, I guess, is my point. If you want to get yeah, and, your... and listen, some of the problem I have with that, too, of just like, you know, everyone's like, you got to make content. You got to make content. You know, I, I really struggle with the whole making content for the sake of making content thing. The, the difficulty I have is that a lot of my ideas aren't like just if just talking through them. I, I don't have radical, crazy ideas about things. 
Um, I think the only thing that I can do that's a little bit different is how I sort of how I can divulge those ideas comedically. And that's what I try to do on my podcast. The implications of Josh Denny. I try to make we try to have episodes where I almost sort of like backdoor incept ideas of what I think through absurd premises. Right. Like the, the newest episode is about incest. And we get into this whole conversation about actually the cures for society might actually be in incest. And of course, we're being crazy. But the funny thing is, is sometimes as you're joking around with things and you comedically riffing back and forth with other comics or other guests, you can arrive at a point that neither of you thought of. And you go, oh, my God, that's an unintended consequence we didn't foresee. Or that's a hilarious byproduct of this. And so I, that's what interests me. And that's that's the kind of stuff I like to do where. You know, we're we're being silly and we're being funny, and and if we make a good point, it's almost by accident. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to actually have conversations that are authentic on the internet if you're um, if you're worried about what people are going to say because you'll you'll fuck up and you'll say things that are wrong or that you don't believe all the time. Change your mind and like Jordan Peterson had this problem right where he. Uh, after the Kavanaugh thing, he tweeted something about like, well, maybe Kavanaugh should step down. Maybe that's the best thing. And a lot of people got mad at him. And I don't agree with that sentiment either. I, I don't agree with his idea. But um, and there's I have other issues with Jordan on on a couple of topics, but that's not the point. The point is all you know, meat dialed diet. on huh? <laughs> his all meat diet, for instance. I can't imagine. I could get behind that possibly. Uh, it's the only <laughs> thing is that I would need. Uh, I need I need to eat pizza. It's a staple. So uh, agree. I I just yeah. listen. It's give me pizza or give me death because I couldn't like I, if if pizza was off the table, I'd be the first guy just diving off of the tallest building in town. Yeah. So um. So anyway, it's it's hard to kind of have those. It's hard hard to think out think out loud online without just having people take shit out of context, especially if you're kind of joking and if you're kind of experimenting with joking you need to um you need to get rid of the the filter um and let yourself just kind of riff and when and that's a vulnerable thing to do because you know you'll have people come along and grab something be like oh he really means this because he said it and it's like well he, he was speaking unfiltered he was thinking out loud or he was trying to be funny and he you know whatever recognizes that it wasn't right but you know they, they won't let you live it down um uh and then sometimes they demand apologies for things that shouldn't be like, I saw your tweet. I know we, you talked about this at the beginning. I was kind of half not paying attention because I was trying to fix the technical issues on our side. But, uh, you know, I see your tweet and like, it it was a valid point. Like the, the term, the term uh, straight white male is being used derogatorily. Is it as impactful as the N word and as horrible? Obviously not. But yeah, and historically, absolutely not. I mean, and, and I think, you know, as everybody's pointed out, like that's where you went wrong and making the point. But it's like, yeah, but in a way, yeah, I understand that. That's what made it an unpopular take. Right. Was the comparison. But you kind of can't make the comparison. It's like in for a penny, in for a pound. If you're going right. to make the comparison, make it all the way. If you make a half ass comparison, then it, no one's really no one's going to see it and no one's going to talk. And by the way, like. This thing, this tweet, when it happened, got something like 35 million impressions in 48 hours. People saw this. People talked about it. It got memed. It became a thing. And people will look back on it and go, oh, holy shit. Like he, he was a little onto it. 
ahead of time. Like I, my, my thing that I say all the time now is I wasn't necessarily wrong. I was just early because it's only continued to grow. And, um, you know, like I, I can't tell you how many articles I've read about Buttigieg and is the fact that he's gay enough to overcome that he's a white male. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's a, those are real articles real. out there that you can read is, is Buttigieg being gay enough to overcome white male for us to elect him as a pre I mean, it's, it's like, so, it's fucking insane. I have yeah. to laugh about this again because it it's so frustrating. I mean, I'm, I'm a lifelong Democrat, a uh, democratic voter until this past November, the midterms, the first time I've ever voted for a Republican. Um, but, and, and the reason I did was because I looked at the candidates and I was like, well, this guy is uh, actually, I know he's the Republican, but he's the most liberal option because the other guy, Beto was, uh, is, it was kowtowing to this belief system. And now you see all of the candidates. It's so disappointing. All the democratic candidates, we've talked about this on the show with the exception of probably Tulsi Gabbard and, and maybe Andrew Yang are are speaking this identity politics ideology. It's not liberal. Right. You're speaking you're speaking racism and sexism and it is an identitarian form of marxism and it that is not that is that is the in some cases depending on who you're running against you're going to be the least liberal candidate running as a democrat. Sure. And, so, and that's really disappointing and you're right. It is there are actual pieces out there um ranking. I told Carter the secret which was um a lot of times SJWs maybe it's not a secret they just vote based on how many marginalized boxes you check off so unless you have a strong opinion one way or the other so back when i in the 2016 um primaries i was living in california i just moved but my voter i was still for the primary i was still in california mm -hmm. and um i voted for sanders i had a strong opinion a, a strong preference for him but when it came to everyone else i didn't really take the time and i seriously went down and i did what people in my echo chamber do which is i'm like i can't remember if i voted for kamala harris or not because i can't remember if i ranked her higher than the latina woman she was running against you know <laughs> like, right right most marginalized. Is, yeah it's how you decide right uh, how no messed up. what how racists vote yeah, well, it's yeah. literally like it's like you're holding up color swatches and you're like, I guess I'll go with the darkest one. So how yeah. is that any different than like the, the way that people pick slaves out hundreds of years ago? I mean, it's that's the point is in this in this pursuit of getting it right. We're getting it the same kind of wrong, just on the other end of the spectrum. And, you know, if if progress means we just make the ruling class a subhuman class like if the solution is that eventually white men are three-fifths of a person is that progress or did we just swing the pendulum and and people go I, and when you say things like that by the way people go oh you're out of your fucking mind like white <laughs> men have had it good forever that's so far away from ever happening until it happens and then everyone will go then that denny was a fucking prophet and and it will be laughing about how right I was all the way to internment camps. It's like, I swear there were probably Jews in World War II that were just like, I feel like this Nazi thing's getting a little bit out of control. And everyone's like, shut up, Jews. Enjoy your money. Your things are fine. Nothing's going to happen. It's a little fucking men's club over there. They just they like their brown uniforms and they're marching and their rallies. They're not anything. And then next thing you know, they're on the trains. And they're like, I fucking said this. I said this was going to happen. <laughs> It's so, it's so, but you're right. It's true. It's the people who are, uh, I, I always have this question where they, they try to redefine sexism and racism, right? You know, so they teach, and I learned this in college where I was indoctrinated 20 years ago, um, that, you know, sexism equals prejudice plus power, racism equals prejudice plus power. And then they define power 
not on an individual level, like on your ability to inflict force, but on a collective level, like which groups mm-hmm. you belong to that determines how much power you have. Um, and so when, when they, when you're arguing with someone who's bought into this redefinition and they say, well, that's not actually racism. That's just prejudice. Cause it doesn't have societal power behind it. That's just prejudice. Well, my right. question is always like, that's semantics. I don't care if you want to call it just, just prejudice. When is it, when are we going to stop being okay with just prejudice? Like, sure. do we have a discernible endpoint? Is there a goal? Is there a measurable end goal in the future, which we're like, okay, we can stop being just prejudiced now against this particular, or we can stop being just prejudiced against men now. Everything's cool now. We don't, there is something inherently dangerously, obviously wrong with, with making exceptions for uh, judgments based on, on sex and race and having having no kind of plan for for when that ends or it's it's okay for you now when is it not okay for you like i don't i don't know it doesn't they don't they don't think through it logically though they buy into it because the the tolerance we talked about it's like the intolerance is being sold as tolerance and they use people's desire to be good and do good and to not be sexist and racist to get them to accept all this bullshit Right. You're 100% right. I think they use their insecurity. It's not a desire to be good, right? Lots of us have desires to be good. You can only be a social justice warrior if you're scared about what that means and you get your idea of good from the crowd around you, right? Because it doesn't make any sense. You have to be, you have to be nervous about whether you're good or not and look around you and go, well, these people seem to think the way to be good is to virtue signal by yelling about, you know, whatever it is. Um, but I, that's why I think you, if like, if you have a stronger set of moral beliefs and you, you're confident in them, it's, it's actually very difficult to turn you. Yeah. And the other thing that we don't, we kind of discount too, is the role that technology has played in all of this. So when you say like, well, why, what, what is it about our society that has now made people want to be more agreeable? Well, it's all documented right on Twitter, right on Instagram. Like the more popular the ideas you espouse, the more likes you get, the more retweets you get. So look at the social media strategies of like A-list celebrities. Nobody's rocking the boat. They're all just like, yay for this. And we got to do something about that. It's, it's all about, it's all about taking populism of the people that are on social media. And all you're doing is creating an echo chamber of popularity. And then you're taking that data of clicks and likes and retweets, and you're selling it to a brand, a cosmetic brand or a fitness brand to give you money to promote your stuff. So there, there is a financial monetary incentive to agreeing with the crowd that never existed before. And it's definitely more difficult, but I I agree with what you said earlier, Carter. I think the pendulum is shifting to where contrarianism is coming back into popularity and you're starting to see contrarian thinkers be able to build their own platforms and create a following somebody like sam harris who's to me just an outright contrarian in a lot of ways uh even though he's kind of hard to put in a left right bubble or something he's just had popularity because of his willingness to challenge status quo ways of thinking and jordan peterson same thing people that are willing to be unpopular uh, to talk about what they think and believe are, are starting to show you that there's a market for that too. The funniest thing to me is that they all think that they're all the kind of mainstream woke people think that they're rebels. They're like, oh yeah, like they call them even that the anti-Trump, you know, they got a lot of problems. They're the resistance. Like, they're the resistance. I'm like, what the hell are you resisting? You're in power. Like, <laughs> like every major institution is on your side. You're not right. Res- you're not resistance at all. Um, 
you know, it's it, but it's it's I don't know. They think they feel like they're courageous by by like virtue signaling on Twitter. I mean, the, the courageous thing is to say stuff that people disagree with. The courageous thing is to do things that might get you banned or fired or, you know, whatever it is. Um, it's not it's not courageous to virtue signal about, uh, I don't know, hating straight white males, for example. <laughs> or, well, I, I can tell you, I mean, if I go to an open mic in Hollywood tonight, I and Carrie could probably agree with this. I bet I could watch a dozen comedians make jokes about straight white males or oppressive male power or um, just just these these sort of things that everyone kind of agrees upon. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting. I did a Montreal audition last year. This was like right before the controversy happened. And I remember going up on stage and doing a bit that I have about uh, slavery that's on my album. It's a little different now than it was when I recorded it in 2012. But um, I basically take a moment and, and kind of highlight in the joke that th when I say slavery, the audience's automatic presumption is black. And I, I kind of poke fun at that. Yeah. And it was interesting that there was a, a black comedian went up after me, a really funny guy by the name of Ron Taylor. And his actual response was, I don't know if that was brilliant or racist and i feel like he was speaking on behalf of the entire room where the room went oh he said black people so we assume it's racist but we don't now that we're thinking about is it racist because he's highlighting what we thought and not what he thinks and it was like right. literally watching a room's head explode of trying to figure out uh this joke hit these trigger words that we're supposed to react to however it's making the point that he just made so it's it's really weird how it's almost like a cannot compute yeah. reaction that people have when you challenge the status quo of how we look at these things, right? Like if diversity and inclusion means that we end up putting in people in deeper categories with more and more labels, is that really better? Because I want a society where we talk about individualism. I like, I want to go to a world where if I want to know what your experiences are as a person, I have to have a conversation with you. I don't get to just decide what it is because of your skin color and your gender and your age. And in a lot of ways, that's what I was protesting with that tweet a year ago. I was saying, listen, I I'm not a straight white male in the way that all of you guys are lumping straight white males together. I had a different experience growing up, a different life, and you're creating a world where none of that matters and none of my individuality matters and none of who I am matters because now you're creating this stereotype of evil and I'm being lumped into that. Yeah, and unfortunately, not to get dark on this, but a lot of, uh, a lot of I would say, a lot of young disenfranchised white males who aren't deeper thinkers about any of this they they get presented with an option you you either can join the left in hating join the left in their identity politics and realize that you're always kind of subservient at the bottom rung and guilty and by virtue of being white and and male and and you know that's all you always be like a second class citizen in that uh in that realm and then on the other side, you've got the, you know, we've said this before, but the other side, you've got like the Richard Spencer type crazies who are saying, oh, yeah, uh, that identity politics is right. Uh, just come to our side where. Uh, right. And I don't want there to only be those two choices. There can't only not. be those two choices. Of course not. And they're and they didn't both of those. choices. Look, I think 30 years ago, both of those choices seemed pretty ridiculous to most people in. Yes in the US. And now though that seems to be the assumption that those are the only two choices. And there's no, you know, I was telling Carrie the other day, I want a party that's like the leave us the fuck alone party. The people who are just like, 
look, we don't, we're not part of any of these things. We want to treat people as individuals, get the hell out of our lives and off of our backs and let us have voluntary mutual relationships with uh, anyone we want. The problem with that, Carter, is the leave us the fuck alone people are not going to get outside their homes and organize into a party. Yeah, <laughs> so that's very true. They, they may eventually. <laughs> well, and, and then the, and then the funny thing is, by being part of the leave us the fuck alone party, which I feel like I am, I, I'm a self-proclaimed libertarian. But the funny thing is, the minute I started talking about my lawsuit, uh, people will come to the they'll come into the chat or they'll come into uh, they'll go to my article. They'll be like, Oh, the libertarian who doesn't want laws now wants the law to protect him. Ooh, who's hiding <laughs> behind the government now, libertarian? Aren't, uh, isn't the free market able to do whatever the fuck it wants? So you can't win. Like no matter which, <laughs> even if you're on the leave me the fuck alone team, people are going to be like, oh, I thought you wanted to be left alone. Now that people are kicking down your door and raping your family, you want the police to come? It's like, can we just have a real, honest, like a rational conversation? Yes, go libertarianism does not mean the government goes away entirely and it's the old west <laughs> even if it that's did what, even if it wants, did though. yeah no i i do want that eventually but even if it did uh you know i believe that if society was ready for that which we're not no uh, a lot of those institutions would arrive arise in an alternate manner from from what we now call the government and so you would effectively have a lot of the same things. You would even have things I don't like, like uh, you'd probably have a lot of same municipal codes because they would end up just being codified in title transfer between property and insurance companies and all that. Like it would end up kind of de facto very similar in, in, off, in, in a lot of ways. So, but the idea that like, well, you're not in a fully, you're not in a limited government world. You're not in a free society. So the idea that like, you also can't use the apparatus of the state when it's being used against you is, pretty silly although in your case i don't think it's the apparatus of the state being used against you but that's a separate issue um well and and really all i i listen i just want us to get to a point where we're having we're, where we're applying the law consistently across the board right like the right. reality is if i were a black if i were a gay black comedian no company in their right mind would ever fucking do what happened to me to a person espousing their beliefs with that identity and yeah. And I, I listen, I'd be willing to bet we could probably go through the company I work for is small, but their parent company is very big. I bet we could go through the social media of everybody that works in their entire organization. And you find a lot of tweets like mine from other people that belong to different identity groups that aren't professional comedians. And I bet they still have jobs. So the interesting thing is like, the, again, companies want to cherry pick who the law should apply to and who it doesn't apply to. And all of it is just rolling the dice at the craps table. They're trying to find the path of least resistance. They're going, okay, uh, how do we not get sued? And if we have to get sued, who, uh, what's the least amount of damage that we could take from being sued? And so they, they're just playing that game. But I would rather companies just operate with integrity and get it. Like, I remember having a conversation with, uh, with the Food Network when many of these trolls that are in our chat right now come, like, message the Food Network and tried to show them tweets and jokes like right after my show got announced so a lot of people were like oh he doesn't have a tv show that's not happening that's a lie and then the tv show gets announced and the trailer comes out and then people automatically get pissed off and start sending in emails going this person's a racist comedian the reality is he knows this every futures contract comes after a full background check and a full vetting is done of the talent so everything that they found in my history as a comedian they signed off on when they gave me a tv show 
100%. And there are legal documents that show that, right? Which is why Food Network didn't comment on my controversy at all, because then they would have to, they would have to own up to the general public. Why did you give this guy a show when you knew all of this? Well, the reason they did is because Food Network is not in the business of appraising comedy. They're not a comedy network. They're not in the business of comedy. So the best thing they could do is go, listen, that's a whole different network's ball game. We don't comment on that. We don't get involved in that. And what comedians do as comedy is their own thing. That's not our business. And if more companies took that approach to comedy specifically, then yeah. I think we'd be in a place where the law is more consistently applied. But the problem is, People want to take comedy now and say, like, these are manifestos. This is like this. These are your personal beliefs, no matter how absurd the context is of what you're talking about. Right. Suddenly tweets, jokes, uh, analogies, all those things are treated as position papers on your your uh, your moral outlook on life. Right. Hey, so like, um, I uh, just so people know, I have trouble reading the chat normally with these things because I get distracted. But I just peeked in there and there's a ton of comments from these people who followed you. But um, one of the things they just keep repeating, and we didn't get to tell it because I think I interrupted you. Um, oh, look, there's some of our regulars in there. Poor, oh, that sucks. They're in there with those. Oh, well. oh, no. Anyway, Psychopath. I closed the chat because I have everything they brought up. I talked to him about before the show and I was. Oh, it was right. It's just boring. Yeah. The oh. thing they, they keep repeating is the plane crash. I mean, is it worth it even telling that story again or not? I mean, it's I, it was the first time I heard it. <laughs> I don't is, know. Is, is it funny or I just I don't think it's funny or exciting. I mean, I could tell the story again. I, I almost feel like people want me to keep telling the story over and over again so they can find nuances of change. Like, oh, he said this happened the first time. And then the second time he said this happened and then this happened. So the whole thing is a lie. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the story, it's not a very interesting story. I mean, we all have no just make it a big lie. Right, right. <laughs> Wait, yeah, let me pivot. I 100. I was first of all, I walked in, I got on the plane, and they were like, You need to fly the plane. I was like, I've never flown a plane before. And they were like, Well, you look like a guy who flies planes, and you're all we have. It's either you or a Taliban looking guy, and we they don't they don't trend well. If we let him fly, the whole place is gonna freak the fuck out. So they asked me to fly the plane. I didn't know what I was doing. It started to go down. That's the end of the story. Right. Now, when did you, when did you deliver CPR to the dying baby? Was that while you were landing or was that after? Well, the problem is, is there were a group of passengers that were restless in the rear of the plane who actually because, you know, they were training me in on flying and everything in the middle of the flight. They were freaking the fuck out and it started to get very Lord of the Flies and they tried to eat one of the babies. They, they whipped up like a hibachi in the back. They were fully ready to cook this baby. And I had to I had to stop flying the plane. That's what autopilot is for run right. to the back, resuscitate the dying infant, and then, you know, naturally uh, loads of applause hurled upon me, uh, and then I made my way back to the cockpit. Well, I see you did some MMA on the cannibals back there, too, right? You... I mean, a little bit of MMA. I mean, like, uh, listen, not a lot of MMA. Just, just you know, my Hodger Gracie black belt in jiu-jitsu came into play <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but I like to, I don't like to bring that up. I don't like to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Things. No, I know. And it, know, it was a true martial artist does not brag about their lethality. So <laughs> <laughs> Thank now you. that I'm... we've, now that we've settled the whole plane crash debate. 
Was that an exciting enough story for everybody? That was better than the first time. Yeah, uh, I'm just, listen, now, this is the thing. Now now that like, they're literally just, I, I, I closed the chat as well like five minutes ago because I was just like, it's just redundant and the same thing over and over again. Yeah, but now different. that it's not going to stop, now I'm just going to make up a new story every time. Yeah, you it's should. It's going to be like the aristocrats where it's just a new version and in the end it's people blowing people. <laughs> Isn't that funny, by the way? Isn't it funny that nobody ever brings up these self-deprecating tweets uh, when they when these mobs go down, like people are like you said this about black people. I said, yeah, I also said I would turn gay for someone that owned a yogurt land. Where's the outrage for that? <laughs> like, no one cares about that one. Right. No one's going. You can't turn gay. And I go, have you had yogurt? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's uh, I, I often view a lot of. Uh, Again, I the, I the trolls in the chat aren't social justice warriors. At least they they they're very adamant about that. So I don't. Yeah, wanna, they followed uh, you from somewhere else, right? Yeah, like, I don't want to imply that yes. they're SJWs, but uh, you know, a, a lot of the a lot of the people I think on the left tend to view um, I think they tend to view language like magic words, and so they don't really care what they mean. It's just like, oh, are these the magic words that will get thing to happen? Like, oh, he said these words. Like maybe maybe if we like put these words out in the universe, people will be angry at him. I don't. There's not like they're not analyzing the content of anything you say and trying to figure out the nuance and like, oh, he meant this and blah, blah, blah. You know, we think that makes him a racist or whatever it is. Or he said something about yogurt and that makes him anti-gay or whatever it is. They're just like they know that the yogurt gay tweet that like those magic words won't have the effect that they want. So they're going to push on the other tweet. It's not a I don't I don't think there's a lot of thought. There's not like a lot of analysis behind it. It's just like whichever ma if if calling you Hitler works, great. If calling you, uh, you know, if calling Candace Owens a white supremacist works, eh, you know, we don't care about the what it means. We just, you know, we want they, to react. Uh, they use words as spells, or yeah, like yeah, words, words or like, spells. What yeah. will make what will make you shut up? Yeah, and there, there's listen. There are and there are a lot of things. Like the 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 worst thing about all of that is it it convolutes the message of like when you try to make actual real points about things that involve politics or race or gender or whatever else. Like one of the other things that people could go through my Twitter feed and find is that I'm very passionate about uh, the Middle East. And one of the things that makes me passionate about the Middle East is the fact that I have a girlfriend who is an Iranian Baha'i. And so a lot of the presumption when people meet her is that a, she's Muslim, which she's not. Most people don't even know what the Baha'i religion is, but they also don't understand that the Baha'i faith and the Baha'i people were like essentially like the the Armenian genocide and when the Ayatollah took over Iran during the revolution in the what was it the 60s 70s it was through that period of time um I'd have to look it up to know for sure but uh essentially Baha'is because they believed that there was a prophet after Muhammad um the orders were to kill them on site. And so my girlfriend and her friends and her family have a very different perspective on the Middle East than you would presume because she's brown and Iranian. And so, again, one, I've always gravitated towards people that break stereotypical molds that are surprising, that are not what you would think they are to be based off of the cultural presentation, right? And so naturally, when you're surrounded by people with stories like that, that are interesting and different than the mainstream, your brain is going to evolve in a way where you're like, okay, well, let me find out who people really are. Let me not just jump to conclusions based off of how they look or their appearance or any of those things. 
And I feel like the real beauty of humanity lies in those nuances of understanding that not all Middle Eastern people are Muslim. Not all Middle Eastern people like uh, the Middle East. And not all Middle Eastern people were against the travel ban. Like most of the Middle Eastern people in my life were like, fuck, yeah, that's why we left. Keep those people out of our country. And so, you know, when white people hear that in America who have no cultural frame of reference, they go, oh, that's bigoted ideology. That's racism. We can't think like that. But you're not listening to people that actually fled murder and genocide. And, and you're not taking the time to understand that there is some nuance to this situation that might inform how we think about it. Uh, because it, it's it's now affecting us in ways that it's affected other cultures for a long, long period of time. Yeah, and it's and you can tell you can tell where the least amount of thinking is because the areas in which you're not allowed to even have a conversation about it, right? Um, if you're not even allowed to talk about it, which it should should indicate to you that this is driven by ideology, not actually a, a reasoned position. Yeah. And, and nobody really wants to do their homework. They just kind of want to say it's like lazy activism. Everybody goes, oh, well, those, you know, we, we, we as America's racist, we don't like brown people. Those are brown people that want to come here and we're not letting them. End of story. And it's like this is why we can't have productive dialogue in this country, because such a large portion of this extreme left, they don't want to hear any nuance. They just want they just are willing to swallow whole the idea that everything we don't like comes from this innate desire of America to be racist. Meanwhile, we, in order to believe that, you'd have to ignore the fact, like, find me another developed country that has created more diversity of wealth than the United States. Like, there are black billionaires, there are Latino billionaires, there are Middle Eastern billionaires that came up in this country. I mean, there's not a better country on the planet than what we're doing. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. But we're doing a lot of things better and we're doing a lot of things right. And I think you have to overlook a lot of that to believe some of this bullshit that's on the extreme left. Hey, I have, um, can I, can I read something to you guys? Yeah. I, uh, you made me think this is the only thing I know about Baha'i is, um, a quote, one of my favorite quotes that actually I found it during a time of grief and it really spoke to me. And I, I come back to it whenever I'm grieving something. And, um, it's Abdul who said this Abdul Baha. Abdul Baha. Yeah. Abdul Baha. I don't know enough about Baha'i Baha faith, but I like this quote a lot. And it actually applies to what I think is you're going through in some ways because you're going through a struggle of trying to gain employment while people are actively trying to get you fired. Um, but the quote is, the more difficulties one sees in the world, the more perfect one becomes. The more you plow and dig the ground, the more fertile it becomes. The more you cut the branches of a tree, the higher and stronger it grows. The more you put the gold in the fire, the purer it becomes. The more you sharpen the steel by grinding, the better it the better it cuts. Therefore, the more sorrows one sees, the more perfect one becomes. That is why in all times, the prophets of God have had tribulations and difficulties to withstand. The more often the captain of a ship is in the tempest and difficult sailing, the greater his knowledge becomes. Therefore, I am happy that you have had great tribulations and difficulties. For this, I am very happy that you have had many sorrows. Strange it is that I love you, and still I am happy that you've had sorrows. I love that quote. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> not yeah, to bring it's... it down, but I think it's like you're going through this. I don't, you know, you were joking beforehand when you were talking about it. I said, oh, I used to work in comedy. And you're like, I used to work in comedy, too. <laughs> <laughs> so true. But, but all these tribulations or all these things for anybody who's watching who may be afraid of like, gosh, yeah, I don't want to say what I think. I don't want to get fired. I don't want to have you know, those things sharpen you and they make you stronger. And they, they, um, it's, it's, it's like that, uh, that, that, that Bible verse about, um, sac you know, 
what is it sacrificing your soul to gain the world so i don't think that 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 sacrificing yourself and your beliefs and your character is, is worth all the stuff all the riches that you could <laughs> obtain yeah, yeah and i i mean you know, and I, and I try to be very transparent about the fact that, like, I am not some valiant warrior about these things. Like, I don't wake up every day like, yeah, I'm ready to suck the day's dick and fucking kick it. In the <laughs> I'm not I am not like one of these overly optimistic, like, like super. I'm not the rock. I don't wake up every day like I'm ready to fight the world's battles. Like, it's tough. It's shitty. It sucks. And every battle I've ever had to fight, I've been drawn into reluctantly. But my my philosophy, once I get there, is like, all right, well, if we're going to do this, then I'm going to put all my brain power and all my willpower behind it and do my best to to fight the battle as best as I can. I mean, you know, it's it's just and I believe that's more of a realistic thing than a lot of things. I, I bet a lot of times the guys who end up running and burning buildings to save people thought about it a few times before they did it. I don't think everyone just so instinctually is ready to go to war for the things that they think are right. But ultimately, you're either compelled to do these things or you're not. And and I've always been a guy who, even with hesitation or reluctance, have been compelled to do these things. And I guess so if I have a message out there for people, it's if you don't feel heroic instantaneously when the world puts a challenge upon you like that, that's okay. It's okay not to feel like, uh, oh yeah, well, I'm ready to go fight all the battles and, and I'm ready to sacrifice everything and I'm ready to risk everything and lose everything. We don't, we, none of us really feel that way. None of the people that are thrown into these things are like, fuck, yeah, can't wait to get fired from everything and not be able to get hired for anything. And I can't, I, you know, like one of my friends said uh, they were like, oh, yeah, like you're like the tech era's Lenny Bruce. And I was like, if only I had that fucking confidence and that excitement about <laughs> myself, like I don't think of myself that way. It's it's very hard to get amped up to go, boy, life's going to kick me in the dick again today. But I guess I'm fucking game for it. Like you just have to keep forging ahead. And and the thing that. The thing that um, I just keep going back to is like, I I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not doing anything intentionally malicious. So, you know, I, I feel like I'm in the right. I feel like I'm doing what's right. And I feel like I'm fighting for what's right. And I am afraid that if people like me don't put their foot down when shit like this happens, it's going to get worse. And, you know, and I, and I do believe that America is in a different place than it was when I went through my first case in 2013. I think in 2013, if we were looking at this same case, I would think about sitting in front of a jury and going, man, I don't know. People might be so squeamish about, you know, my jokes or things that I've said that maybe maybe they would rule against me. I think America's so fucking tired. And, and Carter, we talked about this beforehand. I think Donald Trump got elected primarily for one reason and one reason alone. It was because people don't want to be told what's appropriate anymore. And I think a lot of the protest vote for Donald Trump was like, fuck you. I don't care if he grabs people by the pussy. That's his thing. And as long as he didn't commit a crime, then it's fine. And I like that he owns it. And I like that he didn't apologize. And I like that he said, yeah, I, I, you know, my brand is grabbing people by the pussy. That's what I do. That's what I've done for 40 years. And you guys loved it before I tried to be your president. Um, yeah, I mean, it, he's he's he is cultural. He's a. He's a cultural weapon. That's all he really is. You know, if I if I look at why I think he won, um, I think it was really just he, someone want some people wanted to wield a cultural weapon against this kind of leftist craziness, including the mainstream media, but just generally. Um, and you know, he's that weapon. I don't think people loved his policies per se. Um, I mean. That, I mean, that's the conclusion I came to because I 
I I don't want to repeat myself. We talked about, but I didn't understand why he won, and I was really devastated. And I started trying to figure out why he won. I seemed I came to that same conclusion eventually. Was that the the big? Because especially to trying to explain the people who voted for Obama and then jump to Trump. Why did that happen? And in my echo chamber, the answer was, oh, it's sexism and racism. I'm like, no, that doesn't make any sense. These people, they voted, they were happy to vote for Obama, but then they voted for Trump. Why? And I, I think you're right. I think that, I mean, there's a lot of factors, but I think one of those big factors is that he um, is not swayed by the PC mob. Yeah. Doesn't well, care. okay. If you're if you're in the an ideology that believes Candace Owens can be a white supremacist, then it's pretty easy to 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 say, well, people are racist who voted for Obama. Like, okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't vote. I didn't vote for Obama in 2008 and uh, 2012 because uh, he was black. I voted for him because he seemed like the first person in my lifetime who uh, was smart enough and professional enough to be a president. I was like, oh, this guy talks like he's actually not stupid. And uh, so I like him and, nice I and I vote for him. What's that? That's a nice change from the Bushes. Yeah, of course. Like, you know, fool me <laughs> once, you know, shame on me, fool me. Like, you, you're just not going to fool me again. Like, I remember watching that. I remember watching that clip and be like, this guy's full retarded, right? <laughs> and, and I remember when they came into that, uh, everyone talks about like, imagine being George Bush when they came into that children's school while he was reading to them and tell him about 9-11. And I bet that motherfucker was sitting there going like, so do I like finish the book or should we just shut it down now and get right into war mode? Because wasn't like, the book it was a pop-up book. Down? Oh yeah, I don't remember. He's like, it's a pop-up book oh, or something. He's like, listen, he's like, look, this sounds important, but this cat in his head, I got to see where this shit's going. Because, you know, <laughs> it's exciting, right? Like the cat, the hat, what's, I don't know. <laughs> we got to figure it out. These I'm not going to leave these kids hanging. That's for sure. Their towers ain't going to grow back if I quit this book now. So there's a movie. We can put the movie on for them. Okay. Uh, it's a horrible George Bush. It's just all <laughs> redneck white guys sound the same. I mean, yeah, it's, it's the generic redneck. Uh, yeah, dumb. just generic, stupid, uh, you know, it's Southern guy voice. But but yeah, 100%. And, and it's the same thing. Like, I, I didn't think I didn't think Donald Trump got in because people were. Listen, Donald Trump for 30 years almost 40 years now has been the poster boy for American capitalism. Look at this fucking rich kid. Who's what running around New York with supermodels with fake tits and blonde hair. And he's flying in his own private jets and he's fucking crazy. We love it. Well, that's the same shit that got him elected. You can't make this guy, the poster child of America for half of our lives. And then be surprised that he wins the presidency of the United States. What the, uh, this is where I agree with Gavin McGinnis. He said, when Trump says, let's make America great again, he's not talking about pre-Civil War slavery. He's talking about the 80s. He's talking about when like Coke ads were chicks in bikinis and people's aspirations were to buy Corvettes. And now if your friend buys a Corvette, you're like, Jesus Christ, dude, what's wrong with you? You got a Coke problem? What's going on? Like something happened? No, I, so, I would. Like, I'll vote for anyone who brings the 80s back. Yeah, I mean, so like, you know, back in the just the golden era of what it was to be American, like when when people from other like when all the what who was the kind of American that made all those immigrants want to come here in the first place? Donald Trump. They look yeah. at this guy and they go, look, he has everything. I want some of that. I'm going to go to America. So you, you, if anybody is to blame for the mass immigration it's people like donald trump who really sold the american dream that's why i laugh when people get mad about immigration 
in general, not illegal immigration. It's a separate thing, but it's like you can't advertise America as the Disneyland of countries for 200 years and be surprised that everybody wants to come. Right. That's, right. I mean, that's that's a natural byproduct of how great we are. But we but because of that, you've got to lock it in and you got to do it right. Yep. I mean, look, and, and the gaudiness and ostentation was that's part of Trump's brand. So, oh, yeah, to, like to suddenly be shocked that he's like a uh, crass, gaudy and ostentatious. It's like, where have you been? Uh, yeah, we, we've been voting. We, we didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016. We've been voting for him for 40 years. Every time we buy a magazine he was on the cover of, every time you watched him on Oprah, every time people tuned into The Apprentice, they've been voting on Donald Trump for 40 years. And he, the guy has been winning for 40 years. So the cultural phenomenon, I don't know that it could have ever happened with another guy. And I don't think the landscape of presidential candidates will ever be the same again. I predicted two things uh, before the election at the first debate against Hillary Clinton, I predicted two things. I said, he's going to win. He's going to win this general election because she's acting like she has it in the bag and America's turned off by that. The other thing I said is it will be the last two party election that we ever have. And I believe that this next general will have three final candidates uh, debating uh, up until the election. There will be three the representatives. A third candidate will be an independent Bernie Sanders. Oh, really? Oh, Interesting. That's yeah. I don't know. I think it would happen, but I don't know if it'll happen in this election. I think because uh, I think the Democrats still think they have a chance. I think they need to get beat one more time before people realize that they're this is not going well for I mean, because the Democratic Party is now they're no longer the old Democratic Party. They've been taken over by social justice warriors. So and they're they kind of crazy left at this point. Yeah, you've got people. They, they are so delusional about walk away. Like I said, my friend Mike, who's part of LGBT walkaway panel. Um, they're, they're, I've met so many walkaway people in the past year, liberals, and not everyone's walking to the Republican Party. I didn't. I became an independent. But yeah. it happened since the last election. You know, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. There's a ton of people who are, the party is, is bleeding voters, but they're just delusional about it. They would rather stick their head in the sand and pretend like it's all Russian bots or something. Um, I have to go soon just so you know, I have a friend arriving with a dog to meet my dog and um we can I wrap it up soon it's oh, I, oh no. I like the uh, we're supposed to believe carrie's not on the extreme left anymore you have a dog on dog appointment okay. <laughs> it's a doggy date <laughs> seems pretty leftist to me you i mean I, I was gonna comment on the hat but the dog date says it all i'm not a cat lady though i'm a dog lady <laughs> no i i want to hold over from your previous life carrie yeah i do yeah yeah, yeah she's somebody... the, She's definitely still in the cocoon phase of the transition. <laughs> um, no, I, I, my I bold, my belted you, Carrie. By the way, that no, <laughs> no, it's just you know she's still got a lot of that SJW caterpillar in there. She's about to flourish <laughs> into a into a liberated butterfly. Um, no, my my election prediction is, uh, and I think this is interesting, but I think this is how it could go down. And I made this prediction on my podcast, so we'll see if it holds true. I think it'll come down to uh, Harris slash Booker. I think it'll be Harris. Uh, I think Bernie will run independent. I think Trump will run as the incumbent, obviously. And wouldn't it be interesting if Trump or Bernie wins the popular vote and the other one has the majority of the Electoral College, but nobody gets to 270 and the Democratic House votes in the third place candidate, which will be their system Democrat of Kamala Harris. So my prediction is that's exactly 
happen. And then the American public will go, okay, so do we go to war because now we officially have a government that's not representing the interest of the people. They didn't pick the independent who won the popular vote. They didn't pick the Republican candidate or the incumbent candidate who won the majority of the Electoral College. They just picked their own person. And they are completely legally allowed to do that if nobody gets to 270. I think that's a very realistic possibility for the 2020 election. Let's hope not, because I don't I don't know that that would go well. No, it, it would definitely revolt. It would that that isn't it funny how when you look at the watchman, you know, Dr. Manhattan's vision was that we'd have to create this omnipotent enemy uh, in order to bring people together. Right. What if the omnipotent enemy isn't a, a space alien? It's our own government. And what if the thing that brings the American people together is the recognition that our government is out for itself and not the interest of the people? And what if the thing that brings us together is dethroning our own system of government? Possibility. I could get behind that, I think. Uh, yeah, you, know, you got guns, but, man? Because I'm getting some guns. No, just... <laughs> of course we have guns. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on eBay looking for guns right now. Apparently, I just go to a trade show and get eight machine guns. So I'm going to do that later today. Well, just, you know, as an FYI to everyone, uh, the, the barrel and slide of uh, a lot of weapons is not what's controlled. It's the receiver. And the receiver can be 3D printed with plastic so um nice you know, get yourself a good quality 3d printer that can uh print basically the equivalent of block receivers that's and- that is the whitest way to get a gun i've ever heard listen <laughs> you don't want a gun you could go get a gun at your local CVS parking lot for two hundred dollars. What you need is a forty-five. What you need is a forty-five hundred dollar three D printer. You can make all the guns you want. Oh, that sounds easier. This right, is so- this is what happens when white people don't have any black friends. I have enough black friends. I go get you. You want some guns? I'll go get you two guns by three o'clock today with polish. Really? <laughs> Let's talk after. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well. Um. On that note, uh, I think we should uh, we should wrap it up here. So um, thank you, everyone, for watching Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. Um, let's see. Follow us, please. Uh, subscribe on, on YouTube, Unsafe Space. And uh, we'll see you next week. We, we broadcast live every week at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And sometimes we don't have technical issues. So uh, we'll see you again next week. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for the people that uh, braved the chat. And uh, thank, you, thank you guys. Thank you guys. Oh wait, wait. Before I before I go, after I said all of that, um, how how should people follow you, Josh? What what's the? You follow me on Twitter at Josh Denny or on Instagram at Josh Denny or on Facebook at Josh Denny Official. Um, or you could go to my website, joshdennycomedy.com, which is drastically overdue for a makeover. So that's something I got to do in the next couple of weeks. But those are all the places that people can find me. And then uh, uh, the best way to follow my dates, if you want to see some shows, I'm working on potentially doing some shows this spring um, coming up. So if you want to track those dates and see when they're announced, you can uh, follow my uh, fan page on Facebook and you'll get all the updates for any potential shows in your area. Awesome. All right. Well, on that note, thank you very much again for, for coming, and uh, we will see everyone next week at 11 on Thursday.